The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hello. The internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Hmm. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto here with my two co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Brigham. That's me still. And Dr. Paul Williams. Hey guys. Take three. Paul always sounds like he's here reluctantly. <laughs> he is. It feels a little bit like a hostage situation. He, he did show up like a, a minute before we started recording. <laughs> well, Stuart, did you want to read some listener feedback? I sure do. I've got a golden one here. Uh, so there's actually no uh, exposition here. It just goes right into it. It says, first of all, why did Paul Williams get fired? <laughs> Apparently, Paul's fired. We'll see you later, Paul. <laughs> Second, I will have you know I recently joined Twitter. I have exactly two friends. One is a very close friend and colleague. The other one, well... It's Stuart. I want Stuart to read this comment on the show in his derogatory voice that he does when he reads comments from listeners. Yours truly, Eric. (laughs) That one confused me a little bit. And then I remembered that on almost every episode where Paul's absent, we make a joke about him being fired. So I guess somebody took it to be serious. And uh, Paul was not fired. I I don't think I could fire Paul. Uh, There would be... Quite an uproar if we tried to do that. <laughs> yeah. Even I would uh, stand up for Paul. <laughs> wow. I do a pickup. And to give you, and in case you're a new listener, to give you an idea of why that is, Paul, did you want to give a pick of the week? Well, sure. I would love to, Matt and Stuart. Um, I can't remember if I mentioned this before on the show, but I, in one of my usual acts of self-flagellation, I decided to read all of the Dark Tower series by Stephen King <laughs> from start to finish. And not read anything else until I was done with that. And it has been... Is that your pick of the week? (laughs) No. No, I did talk about this before. I think you asked this exact same question. And again, I had to qualify. I like Stephen King just fine. I just never want to read anything that he's ever written ever again because I'm sick of him. But in any case, so as a treat for myself, after finishing the Dark Tower uh, series, I actually read Moby Dick by Herman Melville. So this is also in keeping of my habit of, of recommending things that everybody knows is already good. But I, I'd never read it before. I'd had no experience with it. I just knew the first line of it, and that was kind of all I knew. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm not sure I would call it the Great American Novel, which it's been called before, but who cares what I think. But it is one of the weirdest things I've ever read. And there's some terms of the phrase that are amazing. And there's an entire chapter devoted to clam chowder. Like, it is just a weird book. Um, so just in if you've not read it, you should at least read it. Just familiarize yourself with a piece of American literature that is is rightfully famous. Um, so, so my recommendation of all things this week will be Moby Dick by Herman Melville. So go read that and not The Dark Tower. Um, I'm probably not going to read Moby Dick, Paul. <laughs> but thanks for the recommendation. Stuart, did you have something to recommend? Yeah, I actually do. Um, so my recommendation this week is a series on Netflix. Um, season two just came out on Stranger Things. The uh, season one's really good. It's uh, got a lot of uh, nods to 80s nostalgia. And season two is, is still pretty good. Not quite as good as season one, but certainly is 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 pretty good. If, you're, if you like the, the thriller, suspense, pseudo-horror genre. 
Okay. Well, I'm glad you're giving that scrappy little show a, a signal boost because I don't think anyone's heard of it. So. <laughs> yeah, well, it's the first time that I haven't I had ever heard of it. Says the yeah. guy who recommended Moby Dick, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to quickly thank our correspondents who are doing great work writing, producing show notes. We have people doing, uh, we have an artist, Kate Grant, who uh, has her own website, paintscientific.com. She's making some great artwork for us. We have. Chris Chu on Facebook, Hannah Abrams on Twitter, lots of other people behind the scenes who I'll be thanking on individual episodes. But uh, yeah, so my pick of the week is our correspondents who, and my wife thanks, <laughs> my wife especially thanks you for uh, helping helping out with a lot of the heavy lifting for the show. As a reminder, Matt's wife is a former pick of the week. So. <laughs> I was going to say same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I I think I was thanking her too. You misconstrued that as a pick of the week, and uh, but it was golden. my wife is taken. So thank you, Paul. This <laughs> this this episode is on Tremor. Specifically, mm-hmm. we talk not the movie. I find out <laughs> not the movie, which is a classic with Kevin Bacon. Uh, definitely check that out if you haven't seen it. Ooh, we had Kevin Bacon, and today we have Andre Steak. Oh, <laughs> two food references. <laughs> Uh, no, Dake, not Steak. His name... Yeah, but when you put his first and last name together, it's Andre Steak. I gotcha. Okay, Stuart. Yep. That's, that counts as your pun, so please don't give another one <laughs> at the end of the introduction. Please. Uh, on this episode of Tremor, we really try to get under the hood of what questions to ask, how to differentiate essential tremor or benign causes of tremor from things like Parkinson's disease. We talk about medication, medical therapy, non-pharmacologic therapy for this. I think it's going to be really helpful. There's a lot of very high-yield clinical pearls in here. Our guest is Dr. Andres Dake. He is a an assistant professor of clinical neurology at a large academic center in Philadelphia. He completed a movement disorder fellowship and was a resident and chief resident at Albert Einstein Beth Israel Medical Center in New York, New York, and now is practicing as a movement disorder specialist. He was gracious enough to speak to us for, I don't know, 45 minutes, maybe an hour on movement disorders or on tremor and as I said, it was really helpful. I think you're going to like it a lot. That's right. Did I miss? Hey, do you, do you know who has a really bad tremor? <laughs> Stop the tape. Stop the tape. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't help myself. James Bond. You know why? Why? He likes it shaken, not stirred. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I don't, I'm not laughing at your joke. I'm laughing at Paul's disgust at your joke. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Actually, I'm laughing at my own, own joke here. <laughs> With us tonight is Dr. Andres Dake. Hi, Andres. Hi, Matt. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. We've, uh, we have a lot of questions about Tremor. We always start off, though, with kind of getting to know you questions my first question is always, can you give us a one-liner about yourself that'll give the audience an idea of who you are? All right. Uh, I am a 36-year-old neurologist and a movement disorder specialist. I'm Colombian originally, but I've been living in the States for 10 years now, and I work at an academic medical center, uh, which I enjoy very much. Excellent. 
how about outside of medicine? Anything, anything unique that you're into that you can tell the audience about or any hobbies, interests? So whenever I can, I try to get away. Uh, and it's an expensive hobby, but I really do enjoy traveling. Uh, in fact, I have a couple of trips lined up for later this month that I'm very much looking forward to. One of them is going to be Southeast Asia, which will be my first. And then after that, Portugal, which will also be my first. Um, it's hard when you work for an academic medical center to get away, but you do what you got to do. That's great. I, uh, I'm pretty much, uh, I, I can't travel too much these days. Uh, taking, taking four children on a plane is kind of a nightmare. So I, if I can't drive it, I can't go there. So I'm very envious that you're going to Southeast Asia, particularly because I, I would love to go there. Well, don't be modest, Wado. You you made it to Grapevine, Texas, which I feel is probably pretty comparable. So, uh. <laughs> yeah, Grapevine was amazing. Thanks for reminding me, Paul. Sure, Paul. Did you have yeah, a question? Like the Paris of the Midwest, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Here it is. I'll ask my usual question, I, which I've continued to make broader. Um, so, just tell me a, a book that you've recently enjoyed. So, I'm currently reading this book called Sapiens. Uh, it's I think the title is Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. And it's been just fascinating. Um, it's an Israeli uh, author. And he really just goes from the beginning of civilization all the way to modern times and speculates about the future in a pseudo-apocalyptic way. <laughs> it's creepy and realistic. So uh, sure. I've, I've really enjoyed that. Yes. Excellent. Yes, there, there's a part in that book where he explains um, like the history of money and how it came together as a concept, which I thought was, I, I just had never really thought about that before, but how everyone just buys into the myth that money is this thing that has value. It's very, it's, it's worth reading just for that, I thought. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating and eye-opening and this whole idea that money is a construct and how everything revolves about it, but it doesn't exist is just fascinating. Just added it to my cart. Let's see. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going to change my question. What's the nerdiest habit that you have? <laughs> That's the nerdiest habit that I have. Wow. The nerdiest habit. Yeah. Yeah. Let me think about that. Um, well, I, I'm a big nerd, so I have many. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> I want to hear about it. Uh, let's see. Um, well, at some point, I saw start to finish... Uh, one of the Star Trek, uh, the new ones, uh, the one with the female captain. I can't remember the name, but I sat down on a weekend and Voyager. plowed through Voyager. Thank you. Yeah, Voyager. I yeah. plowed through Voyager in about 72 hours, which right, was excellent. pretty nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> I think we could get along just fine. Yeah, but I really enjoyed that, actually. It was yeah. just great. Um, but that was... A good three years ago. I think recently the nerdiest thing I've seen is uh, go on um, the National Geographic uh, channel on demand and just mm -hmm. watch Cosmos, uh, which I've seen already is twice. It, is that the one with uh, Morgan Freeman? No, it's no. with uh, the astrophysicist. Uh, what's his name? Oh, I, I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, that one, yeah. Yeah, so that was pretty cool. Yeah, that's that's with Neil deGrasse Tyson. I, oh, that's right. Thank you. Yes. And produced by Seth MacFarlane, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, really? <laughs> of course. It's, it's well. Or I could be making that up. Who knows? 
<laughs> who actually has a new show about I'm it's looking. like a parody on Star Trek. So, oh right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. He's doing the Orville now. Yeah, that's right. All right. Well, I think we've been sufficiently derailed from the topic by your question, Stuart. So uh, was, I did my best. You're you're just masterful at that, Stuart. Let's let's move into the topic of tremor, and we're going to try to gear this towards our primary care audience. The first question I'd like to ask you: if you if you had to write a description of tremor for kind of the general public on Wikipedia, what would that sound like? Well, a tremor is a rhythmic oscillation of a body part. That's as simple as you can get it. And I say a body part and not necessarily a hand, just to emphasize that you can have tremor anywhere in your body. I think when we think of tremor, we think of our hands are shaking, but the truth is uh, tremor can affect anywhere from your face down to your feet. To me, the difficult, one of the things about tremor that I always struggle with is like remembering how to classify it, how to describe it. So can you simplify that for us and give us your approach? Sure. So when you see a patient with tremor, the first thing that should come to your mind is to define whether the tremor is a tremor at rest or a tremor with action. And the difference there is when the patient is just sitting across from your computer and is just shaking all over, but yet he's not doing anything, patient probably has a tremor at rest, as opposed to that tremor that happens whenever he activates whatever body part uh, is prone to the tremor. And now within that, within that idea of rest, tremor, and action tremor, there's subclassifications, particularly for the action tremor part. Um, And then when we think of action tremor, we think of an intention tremor, uh, which is a subtype in which as the person reaches a specific target, you can see an increase in the amplitude of the tremor. There's also a postural tremor in which basically the patient just holds up their arms and then you see that their hands start to shake, even though they're not engaging in any specific activity, but just by the fact of holding them up, they'll start to shake. And then there's another tremor, which is called an isometric tremor. And that's like the, um, that's what we, what I call the gym tremor, which is uh, the tremor that comes out when you hold an object and you sustain the contraction. So, and maybe you can help me clarify something that I've never quite understood, but could you tell me what the difference between a resting tremor and the postural tremor is? What differentiates those two things? Because they sound awfully similar to me, unless I'm completely misunderstanding. No, you're right. They, they are similar. Uh, the difference is, is based on latency. So basically, when you have a patient and you ask them to raise their arms up and the hands start to shake immediately, that is a postural tremor not to be confused with a re-emerging tremor. So a re-emerging tremor is a postural equivalent of a rest tremor. And what happens there is that the patient raises their arm. There is no tremor, but then if you wait a few seconds, you'll start to see that a tremor starts to emerge. And that's how you can differentiate a postural tremor from a re-emerging rest tremor, which can happen in posture. Um, By definition, when you think of a rest tremor, the patient should really be at rest. Uh, sometimes we do distracting maneuvers. We tell patients to sit down with their arms in their laps and to close their eyes. But sometimes even that's not enough. Sometimes we just have to take the pet, uh, the patient, have to lie them down on a stretcher table to close their eyes. And only then will we see the rest tremor component to emerge. I, I do want to talk specifically about the, the physical exam. Uh, so since we, we kind of got, we can jump back to the history a little bit uh, before we get there. 
what questions are important that we ask the patient? Like when we're, so we, we say, okay, we think this is a rest tremor or an action tremor, but we also want to get some history before we start to examine them. So what sort of questions are important to ask? Sure, that, that's an excellent question. I, I do think that the history probably gets gives away 70% of the diagnosis, and, and I can't emphasize how important it is. So when I usually see a patient with tremor, my first question is, when did it start? And the answers are varied. You know, patients can tell me it started six months ago, or it started at some point in the past, but I can't really tell. And it's very important to try to limit a specific time frame because it tells you about progression of disease, and it also guides you to a diagnosis. If somebody tells you, you know, if they're 65, but they've had tremor since their 20s, that's very different from somebody who's 65 and has had tremor for six months. So really try to establish a, a timeline. And sometimes you have to really drill patients down for them to give you a specific number. Once you've established that, you want to see which kind of activities or scenarios bring, bring out tremor. So you ask them about activities of daily living. Do you have a tremor that comes out when you're drinking a cup of coffee? Do you have a tremor that interferes with handwriting? Do you have a tremor that interferes with your ability to button a shirt or brush your teeth or dress in the morning? Things like that. And that tells you a lot about the nature of the tremor. So sometimes when somebody has a rest tremor that is very infrequent, the patient will be sitting there and you won't really see anything. Um, But just by knowing that, you would be able to tell, okay, this sounds more like an action tremor or a rest tremor. Most of the people with rest tremors will tell you that the tremor is not disabling. Oftentimes, when we first see them, the tremor is just kind of something that's annoying, but it's not functionally disabling. As opposed to patients with action tremor, who by the time they see you, it's because it's really bothering them. They probably live with it for a while, and it's starting to interfere with things that really get in the way. On the history, how about medications? What what do we want to ask about there? Absolutely. Very important. Uh, and medications can go both ways. You can have medications that enhance tremor, but also medications that tone down tremor. And you want to make sure you acknowledge whether the patient is on one versus the other. The typical drugs that enhance tremor are inhalers. So patients with a history of asthma, always ask them about whether they're uh, on any kind of beta agonist. Um, You also want to ask patients also with asthma, but also rheumatologic diseases, whether they're on steroids. Steroids can also certainly increase the amplitude of a tremor. Um, Psychiatric medications, so patients with bipolar disease or psychotic disorders uh, who are on antipsychotics or SSRIs or lithium, certainly want to ask about those because any of those can enhance the tremor quite a bit. And then, of course, there are rare medications that we don't really use anymore, things like xanthines or, or other stimulants that are uh, rarely used now but can also enhance your tremor. And I wanted to point out for the audience the, that you mentioned SSRIs because almost like, you know, a very high percentage of patients being seen in primary care are using these medications and not something that I really had had associated with tremor, uh, at least in my head. I don't know, Paul and Stuart, if you're, if you're having people complain of this. Less so um, the SSRIs and more propion, and that's completely anecdotal. I've not gone in too deep into the data, so I, I don't know if that's, if that's something Dr. Dake has seen as well. Absolutely, yeah. Well, bupropion, usually at doses higher than 300 milligrams, will give you a significant tremor, and I have a few patients on 450, um, and then you can really see it there. Uh, among the SSRIs, I think thir- sertraline is very uh, commonly related with tremor, uh, as well as fluoxetine. So Prozac, patients on 
not that high doses of Prozac actually, and and you'll see them shaking quite a bit. Okay, that's really that's really helpful to know because yep. I think you know it could it could um, shorten the workup if you're just like oh <laughs> you're on an SSRI very commonly associated with tremor, and with the tremor associated with these medications, could it is it typically a resting tremor or an action tremor or could it be anything? So it could be anything, and you'll see that that's a theme in many answers that I'll give you throughout the night. Okay. Uh, that's but helpful. In general, <laughs> yeah. But in general, I would say that medication-induced tremors are usually postural tremors, so high-frequency, low-amplitude tremors that are greater in posture than with intention. Uh, so when you're examining them, you really want to analyze both of these components uh, because what you'll see is these, these patients who are they just describe themselves as very shaky. And it and it's exactly that. It's that high frequency tremor that you'll see in their hands. Now, sometimes the severity of the tremor is such that it's what we call it spills into rest. So you tell them to close their eyes and you'll see that the fingers kind of twitch a little bit when they're closing their eyes. But by far, the postural component should be larger than the rest component. And that kind of guides you that way. Because, you you know, we see a rest, comp- a rest component and we, you know, we get a little afraid that maybe we're dealing with something else. But then when you go through the exam, you realize that the postural components, the postural component takes prevalence and, and thus it, it's more likely a, uh, a drug-induced tremor than a Parkinsonian tremor or something like that. Well, I think it makes sense to go into the exam from here. And do you, should we be doing a full neurological exam on all these patients or can we can we just focus on the tremor aspect? And if you could walk us through a little bit how you assess these patients on an initial visit. Sure. So when I see these patients for the first time, the answer to your question is yes. Um, you do a <laughs> neurologic and a movement disorder exam. The movement disorder exam gives you the diagnosis, and the neurologic exam make you know tells you that there's nothing else going on. So okay. the reason to do the neurologic exam is truly really to exclude more ominous causes of tremor, but the money's on the movement examination. And what I mean by that is that you go through several steps in that exam, which are separate from what you would do in a normal neurologic examination. So the first thing you do is you tell the patient to sit uh, on their chair. Uh, Hopefully it's a chair that has armrests and you tell them to just let their arms uh, rest on the armrests. Uh, I usually do distracting maneuvers like asking them to cut back, uh, cut back from 30 or name the months of the year backwards or something like that. And that often brings out the tremor. Rarely do I need to lie someone down in the stretcher. Usually just by doing that, it's enough to see whether there's a rest component. But once you've established whether there's a rest component or not, you proceed with the action part of the examination. So you tell them to raise their arms up, uh, sort of in a Superman-like position. That's what I tell them. <laughs> Um, I kind of dated myself there, I guess. Now, say, in an Iron Man-like position or something. <laughs> okay. No, Superman stole thing. You're okay. Okay. Um, and then watch and see whether you can see any hand tremor. Now, sometimes the tremor in the hands is very subtle. Um, and you can do things to make it more obvious. You can put a piece of paper on top of their hands and you'll see the paper shaking. The other thing you can do is give them a laser pointer and look at the wall. You'll see the tremor being projected on the wall as opposed to the tremor in the hands. So you can do that when the tremor is very subtle. Um, But then you move the arms in different directions. You also put them in a wing position or in a chicken-like position where the elbows are flexed 
um, but the hands are still extended and the fingers are almost touching each other, but not quite touching. And that brings out a lot of postural tremor. And then you proceed with the finger to nose maneuver where they touch their finger and then they touch your nose. And that assesses for the intention component of the tremor. Um, the rest of the examination is looking for signs of Parkinsonism. So not so much looking at the tremor component itself, uh, but just assessing whether there's other signs uh, that the patient might be developing a Parkinsonian syndrome. And that includes checking the tone in a patient. So that's what we call cotwheel rigidity. If you uh, check the tone in the, in the elbows, the wrists, the knees, and the ankles, and you find this little catch as you move it passively or as you activate one of their limbs, it's probably cogwheel rigidity and it's suggestive of Parkinson's disease. Uh, but the most important part is the rapid alternated movement. So you tell the patients to tap with their fingers, open and close their hands, pronate and supinate uh, intermittently. And if you see a decrement in the amplitude of those movements, that is what we call bradykinesia. And that is the defining feature of a Parkinsonian syndrome. When you said open and close, that's where they kind of tap tap one finger against the thumb and then another finger against the thumb and keep going down the line. Is, is that what you're talking about there? So that is more a test of coordination. So if you have okay. a patient with ataxia, for example, you tell them to alternate in between the fingers. If you have a patient with Parkinson's, really all you need to do is to tap between the index and the thumb repeatedly. And what you'll see is that the amplitude of that tapping diminishes. Interesting. Yeah, I, I think uh, this is very helpful to me. I, I'm definitely... <laughs> That uh, I I was not doing that correctly. I think. Well, it takes uh, it takes thirty seconds, and yet it gives it away. Yeah. Another another thing I had read, and and I I think you already alluded to this a little bit, but I wanted to swing back. It, it was mentioning that if you have the patient lay with like their mouth partly open, lay supine with their mouth partly open, that there's a difference in uh in in Parkinson's disease versus versus an essential tremor in like the intensity of the tremor. Can you speak to that a little bit? Is that, um, am I making sense? I can ask the question again if it's... Uh... No, I, I know what you're asking. Uh, yeah, so mouth tremor in general is a little bit unusual in patients with essential tremor. When we see a tremor of the oral area, we usually think of Parkinson's and tremor in Parkinson's can involve the jaw, the lips, the tongue, or all of the above. And sometimes when the patient has their mouth closed because they're activating the jaw, the tremor goes away. So if you remember in Parkinson's disease, the, pri the primary component is at rest. So basically by telling them to open their mouth, you're really relaxing their temporalis and masseters and other muscles uh. of mastication. And that allows for a very subtle rest tremor of the mouth to emerge. Huh. Um, now in patients with essential tremor who have mouth tremor, which as I said is unusual, but does happen, the tremor there usually happens more with activation. So it's the opposite, right? So it's the tremor that you'll see usually not so much in the mouth area, but in the cheek area. And it's these tremorous cheeks that happen when they talk. Uh, so you tell them to, you know, tell you a story. How was the traffic getting down here? Which if you work in downtown Philadelphia, <laughs> you know, you'll, you'll always get a earful of that. Um, and that really brings out this sort of fast quiver of the upper lid and the cheeks, which is more suggestive of essential tremor. The other part that I, I just realized what I was confusing it with, when you when you ask someone to perform a mental task, my understanding is that Parkinson's disease versus essential tremor, there's a difference in the tremor there as well. Is that true? 
well, in general, the tremor in essential tremor is faster than that in Parkinson's. In Parkinson's, we think of what is called a slow tremor, which is something between three to four to seven hertz, whereas a tremor in um, essential tremor tends to be faster, seven to 10 hertz or so. Um, so when you perform a task in patients with Parkinson's disease, the tremor should really go away. You know, can you have action tremor in Parkinson's? Of course. And as I mentioned before, there'll be multiple exceptions to the rule. Mm-hmm. But in general, if you have a patient who has a rest tremor, just by asking them to activate, the tremor should improve, if not subside. Whereas in patients with essential tremor, you would expect the tremor to get worse. So actually, I'd, I'd like, if you don't mind, to go back to the history a little bit, um, even as much as I love the physical examination. It, I, it sounds, at least going through the reviews, that the big ticket discussion is essential tremor versus Parkinsonism. And I guess, I guess I wanted to ask about sort of like exacerbating and alleviating features that maybe kind of help you out, sort of historical details, if you just wouldn't mind comparing and contrasting the two, sort of what patients tell you and how that might help to, you differentiate between the, sort of the two big diagnoses. Absolutely. Um, so going back to the history, you want to ask them uh, whether there's specific activities that bring out the tremor. And there's tremors that can be very task-specific, and it's what we call a task-specific tremor. So patients can have, let's say, a writing tremor, where the tremor just comes out in the hand when they're writing, but really not in any other activity, even if they're using the same hand. It can also happen uh, when people have very high-skilled jobs, for example. So musicians can have what we call a musician tremor, where the tremor, let's say they are violinist, and the tremor only comes out when they're playing the violin, but doesn't really come out in any other activity. And this high specificity for a task often makes us think of something called a dystonic tremor. So when patients have a condition called dystonia, it can be highly task-specific. So something very important to ask is whether the tremor has that task specificity. Um, Now, patients with tremor often will tell you that anxiety will make the tremor worse, but that's true for any kind of tremor. So that doesn't necessarily help you very much to distinguish between the forms of tremor because all tremors, irrespective of the cause, will worsen with anxiety. In general, patients with essential tremor will also tell you that the tremor is alcohol responsive. Now that doesn't always pan out, but you will have the occasional patient that will tell you that they have a glass of wine or they drink a beer and the tremor really calms down. And when you hear that history, you think more of uh, essential tremor kind of condition. Um, as I mentioned before, in patients with Parkinson's, you want to make sure that the tremor goes away with action. So when you ask them about the tremor, you tell them about these specific different activities and you see whether they tell you if the tremor goes away by performing them. And if so, you would think that this is more of a rest tremor than an action tremor. Um, and then, of course, Uh, medications that they've tried. And that doesn't necessarily help you, but if a patient tells you like, well, I also have high blood pressure and my doctor put me on a beta blocker and my tremor got better, then you think that the tremor is probably an action tremor as opposed to a rest tremor, which shouldn't really respond to beta blockers. And how how much does family history help out in terms of differentiating between the two? Um, Family history is tricky. So essential tremor is the most common movement disorder, Uh, much more common than Parkinson's disease per se. And it is not uncommon for patients with Parkinson's disease to have a history of tremor, particularly if they have tremor-predominant Parkinson's disease. So 
Although when we hear that somebody has a strong family history of tremor, the most likely diagnosis in the patient that is seeing you will probably be essential tremor just because mm-hmm. essential tremor has this very highly predominant autosomal dominant sort of pattern of inheritance. You can't hang your hat on that. You have to really kind of take into consideration all the other aspects that the patient is telling you. Parkinson's disease also runs in family, unfortunately. So about 10% of patients with Parkinson's will have a family member with Parkinson's. The other thing is that the absence of family history doesn't rule out a familial condition. And there's many reasons why there is. And, and usually the most common one is low penetrance. So even though you have a gene that segregates in the family, the fact that you have the gene doesn't really mean that you'll have the condition. The other thing that happens is that maybe one of the parents or one of the siblings passes away from a different reason early or on in their life, and then they never really lived, a lot, lived enough to develop a tremor. So you ask them, well, does anybody in your family have tremor? No, mom and dad never had a tremor, but they both died in their 40s. Well, that doesn't really tell me anything. Right. When we're talking about essential tremor, I just want to make sure that I that I have the this I'm thinking of this correctly. It, it, it's it's always an action tremor, is that correct? It's it's not a rest tremor. Yes, but so <laughs> so yes, the you know the the classic definition of essential tremor is an action tremor of the hands, particularly an action tremor in which the intention component is more noticeable than the postural component, as opposed to what I mentioned before in the drug-induced tremor, for example, where the postural component is more noticeable than the uh, intention component. However, if you have a patient with essential tremor who has had tremor for many years, and by many, I mean probably five or more, at some point, they started to develop a rest tremor as well. And it's not a rest tremor per se, like you would see in Parkinson's disease, is just this action tremor that is now present at rest. So you can see a little bit of that tremor starting to emerge during the rest phase. But if you perform the examination, you'll see that the intention component will continue to be the most sort of prevalent sign. Okay, that's clear. Thank you. Sure. With Parkinson's, we had talked a little bit beforehand, and you you mentioned to us that there is a, a high misdiagnosis rate. Can you talk a little bit about that and why you why you think that is? Yeah, that, that's a great question, and one that certainly hinders a lot of research in Parkinson's. Unfortunately, there's a several reasons. So one reason is that, well, it, it's the situation that I just mentioned to you. So a patient comes to see a practitioner who's, who notices a rest component and immediately diagnoses the patient with Parkinson's, but doesn't take the time to look for a postural or an intention component and doesn't notice that there is a very significant uh, action component as well. So misdiagnosis based on incomplete examination is probably the most common cause of misdiagnosis. Mm. Now, There's also the problem that a lot of people that we diagnose with Parkinson's don't end up having Parkinson's. And we, I mean, movement disorder specialists. So even in in people who, like me, do this day in and day out, you know, the literature says that our rate of misdiagnosis is about 10%, and that is based on pathological studies. So even though the patient might, through the course of their disease, very much look like they have Parkinson's, if you send them for autopsy, you will see that their brains don't look like Parkinson's. In about 10% of people, they'll have other pathology. They might have 
of tau pathology, for example, as opposed to alpha-synuclein pathology, which is what you would expect in patients with Parkinson's. Um, and what we're understanding now is that it's not Parkinson's disease, it's the Parkinson's diseases. So there's multiple genes now that have been identified that can cause this. Um, and there's also multiple type of pathology that can cause the same phenotype. Sometimes people live long enough where you can, uh, while they're alive, make that differentiation. So you follow someone with Parkinson's for, let's say, 10 years, and for those 10 years, they very much behave like Parkinson's, but then one day they can't move their eyes, and you wonder, like, hmm, this is probably not Parkinson's, and it ends up the patient actually has progressive supranuclear palsy, or PSP, which is an atypical Parkinsonian syndrome that during the first years can very much look like Parkinson's and then eventually turn into this phenotype that is very different. So if you follow a patient for long enough, you might be lucky that you see that sort of phenoconversion, but sometimes patients die before they phenoconvert. Uh, mm -hmm. And even though we thought they were Parkinson's, they ended up having something else. Is there any utility to getting labs or other imaging studies that are going to help us with this workup? So unfortunately, at this point, we don't have any biomarkers, like a reliable biomarkers that can distinguish uh, while the patient is alive between a Parkinsonian syndrome and an atypical Parkinsonian syndrome. Now, PET scans have been used in a research, um, in a research scenario to try to distinguish these two. And there are some FDG PET patterns that can be helpful but we don't routinely do that in clinical practice because it really doesn't really change our management very much. We would treat the patients the same regardless of what the PET scan shows. Mm -hmm. So, of course, it's hard to justify that for insurance companies. Now, there is tests. There is a test that you can use when you have a patient with tremor who you don't know whether they have tremor due to a Parkinsonian syndrome or tremor due to essential tremor. And that is called a DAT scan, and it's a dopamine transporter scan. And what that scan does is that it images the integrity of the dopaminergic system in a patient's brain. And patients with a Parkinsonian syndrome will have an altered dopaminergic system, whereas patients with essential tremor really should not. And it can be very black and white that way, and it can very easily differentiate between essential tremor and Parkinsonism. But it doesn't differentiate between the different causes of Parkinsonism, of which there are many. So you can use a DAT scan to, to tell the patient, you have a Parkinsonian syndrome or you do not, but you can't use a DAT scan to tell them which Parkinsonian syndrome you have. We still, unfortunately, have to rely on the clinical diagnosis. I think we will probably be doing a future episode just on Parkinson's disease on its own yeah. because if we think patients have that and we can't, we can't reliably distinguish on our own, we're going to be referring them to a neurologist so I do want to spend time talking about the non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic treatments that we can offer to our patients with tremor. Maybe we can do some non-pharmacologic stuff first. Um, and maybe you can, do you have a case that you wanted to give us? And I think part of what's really helpful to us, I'll include this under non-pharmacologic strategies, is like when you first diagnose a patient with tremor, how do you explain it to them? And how do you counsel them? Like these are things you can do that might help you function better on your day-to-day -day basis, because that's really what's going to help our listeners help their patients. So I'll give you a case of a 70-year-old gentleman with a history of bipolar disease who came to see me on uh, lithium and a typical antipsychotic with a postural tremor that 
got in the way of eating and uh, dressing mostly. And the patient when I first saw them was not Parkinsonian. So they weren't really slow or stiff or had lost their facial expression. They had this very high amplitude postural tremor that was very disabling. And then when I saw them initially, I told them that based on their medicines, the most common cause for their tremor was really their lithium. Um, and that my recommendation was to reduce their lithium dose. Um, but that, of course, was not a change in their drugs that I could do myself. So I got in touch with their psychiatrist, and we kind of worked out a plan of how to reduce the dose of their lithium. And the tremor improved significantly, uh, mm. but didn't really go away. And the tremor was still disabling, even though the amplitude wasn't as bad. And at that point, I decided to treat the patient uh, with propranolol, which actually helped quite a bit with their tremor control and didn't really you know, trigger any depression or anything like that. So, so I thought that case was interesting for different reasons. Number one, uh, it kind of emphasizes the importance of having to really take a thorough history and make sure that you know each and every one of the drugs that the patient takes and what doses they're taking. Because uh, oftentimes you'll find that just reducing the dose of one of their agents will be good enough. But also the fact that even though it's inelegant, you can try the you can treat the side effect of one drug with another drug. Because, <laughs> um, at the end of the day, what you really want is the patient to be able to function. Uh, so, in an ideal world, yes, I would have just gotten rid of the lithium, but then he would have gone manic. So, mental health takes precedence, and we do that yeah. not infrequently. Do you routinely recommend patients with a, maybe an essential tremor? or a postural tremor, I know they make special utensils and special keyboards. Is that something that you've anecdotally seen patients get help from using those things? Absolutely. So there's a, there's a very big market on the internet for these devices that can help patients with tremor and really any kind of tremor. It doesn't really have to be only tremor with essential tremor. Most of the devices available are weighted utensils and weighted devices. So they make these um, sort of uh, razors and toothbrushes and silverware out of uh, materials that are very, very heavy. And by virtue of the weight, that can be sometimes enough to mm. dampen the tremor while they're using it for these activities. There's also a very interesting device that's called the liftware device, which is a spoon. Well, it's actually, it has adaptable head, so you can turn it from a spoon to a, to a fork but it has a small motor inside that senses the patient's tremor and then vibrates in the opposite direction, oh, thus oh. canceling out the tremor. It's pretty neat, actually. There, I highly recommend it. There's a very cool video. Well, of course, there's many videos on YouTube that you can <laughs> see it at work. And it actually works. It's a little pricey, but for the right patient, I think sometimes hmm. that can help. They all also have these bracelets that are that are weighted and you just put the bracelet on uh, and the nice thing of doing that is that again you can use the, the bracelet with any activity so you can use the weighted utensil when the tremor, when the tremor is a little bit more task specific but when you have really tremor that interferes with many activities might as well just use the weighted bracelet and it'll quiet down the tremor a little bit any huh. any exercises or things like that that a patient could do that might help with the tremor so unfortunately, there's no exercises that can help with tremor. Um, of course, it's good to exercise in general, uh, but there are no hand exercises or activities that can 
you know, strengthen the muscles in the arm such that a patient will not have tremor. However, I will say I oftentimes send my patients to see an occupational therapist and they can be really amazing the ways that they really figure out the specific activities that are impaired in a patient and uh, really all the adaptive devices and ways to get around it. So when a patient really doesn't really want to try drugs or has had poor success or side effects from drugs, then don't be afraid of seeing an occupational therapist because they can really figure out ways to help you. I wanted to actually kind of throw a question to Stuart here about about treatment and what are Stuart you, you haven't said much which is uh, unusual for you on a show and <laughs> yeah what are, I, what are I, you I raised my hand to... a few times and I wanted to throw something in there but okay that's okay you you were you're on a roll so. I, I wanted to see what are you commonly using in, at Cashlack and and like what doses and then maybe Andres you can comment on like what you'd recommend first second third line things like that. Stuart, what are you? What's your go-to drug if you if you think someone has essential tremor? I mean, what is there? I don't, the first things that I typically use are beta blockers, but that's that's what I was trained on. So, um, you know, and, and I look at the indications for the beta blockers. So, if if someone has cardiac disease, then I'm going to use more of a long-acting beta blocker. But if they don't, I might use something like propranolol for uh, more you know fine-tune tune control. But that's that's essentially the only thing that I was trained on. Yeah, I, I, you were trained right. That that that's the <laughs> definitely the first line of treatment. Uh, propranolol is an excellent drug. Um, for if you can't use propranolol for whatever reason, other good alternatives are natalol and atenolol. Right. Um, metoprolol doesn't really help very much, so I tend to shy away from that. But I do switch a lot of people from metoprolol to propranolol uh, whenever their cardiologist or their primary care physician agrees to. Now, mm-hmm. if somebody can't take a beta blocker because either A, they have asthma, or B, they already have bradycardia or hypotension, yeah. second line of treatment would be something like primidone. Uh, so primidone can work also very nicely, and primidone has the added, well, has two uh, nice things about it. One, it helps people sleep, which in my population, I would say 70% of my patients can sleep. Sure. Uh, for one reason or another. So that is always very helpful. And then the other one, it's a very long-acting drug. So compliance with the treatment is usually high. And it's easy to give them just, you know, one or two pills at night. And that works very nicely. Now, once propranol or primidone fails, unfortunately, the other drugs available uh, are not as great to treat mm-hmm. tremor. But my third line would probably be topiramate, which is tricky to use in people older than 65 because of the cognitive side effects. Right. But if you have a younger patient, sometimes you can get away with doses of uh, anywhere from 100 to 200 milligrams a day, and that, uh, and that helps quite a bit. I, I, I try to shy away from Topamax or topiramate only because... Uh, Anecdotally, the the patients who start on it, it's it's you know I've had pa- patients that were like A B honor roll students become C students on on topiramate, and it's just it's pretty striking the the effects that that I've had. But yeah, no, so I I, I don't use primidone typically, but only because I'm not really that um, familiar with it. But certainly, I will uh, admit my naivete. Yeah, I mean, with the primidone, I, w- I would say just be careful of drug interactions, of which there are many, um, especially people on, on warfarin. You have to be careful. Right. Uh, you might need to adjust their warfarin dose. 
But I usually start at a dose of 50 milligrams at night and go by 50 milligram increments every week up to up to 750 if they can tolerate it. And uh, but I, I would say when it works, it usually works around 200 milligrams. So sometimes yeah. you don't really have to go much higher than that. What do you think about gabapentin for essential tremor? Gabapentin is is like water. Um, <laughs> That's my view, uh, meaning you give it to people and nothing bad happens to them, but also nothing good happens to them. Like, I right. don't really feel gabapentin helps very much with tremor. It helps for many other things. Uh, but unfortunately, rarely have I had a patient who once I've tried gabapentin, I, I keep them on it because oftentimes it just does nothing and causes sedation. The, the other medication I had a question about, I, I've had a few patients come back from neurologists and, and now they're on long-acting benzodiazepines like clonazepam for essential tremor. Is that something that you use? I do. Um, the problem with benzodiazepines, of course, is our epidemic of drug abuse. And it's mm-hmm. certainly a fear when you prescribe these restrictive medications but they work for the patient who can tolerate it. It can be very nice. As I mentioned before, every tremor gets worse when people are anxious. And sometimes mm-hmm. when I give people clonazepam, I wonder if what I'm treating is their anxiety. But as long as their tremor gets better, hey, why not? Right. <laughs> with, the, with the bread and butter medicine, propranolol, can you talk about what dose you would start people on and what formulation? And then when do you see them back and follow up to, to check how you're doing with that medication? Sure. So the two things you'll learn about a movement disorder specialist, and I'll put myself as an example, is that A, we're nerds, and <laughs> B, we are wimps. So I am very wimpy with propranolol, even though I should probably be a little bit more aggressive. I warn the patients about that, and I tell them that I'll give them a very slow taper of propranolol, but there's a reason behind it. Number one, the patients I see are often 65 plus, so so I want to be careful with this drug, but also because I find that if you titrate it slowly, sometimes you don't really have to get to very high doses, and if you start at a high dose, you might, you know, sure, you might control the tremor, but you might have controlled it at a dose half as high, so why not do that and minimize your risk of side effects? So what I usually do is I start with 10 milligrams a day, increase up to 20 milligrams. Yeah, very little. 20 milligrams three times a day. And once they're at 20 milligrams three times a day, I'll switch them over to long-acting propranolol, 80, and then do 80, 120. And then by 120, I start getting palpitations myself, and I'll probably add (laughs) a second drug. Awesome. That's, That's really helpful. That's a very low dose. Yes, it is. All our geriatricians listening are going to just be like thrilled that you said (laughs) 10 milligrams once a day to start with. Believe it or not, I have patients who at 10 milligrams have had tremor control. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I think that the most common dosage that I've started off uh, for essential tremor has been 10 TID, 10 three times daily instead of 10 once daily. But that's, uh, yeah, definitely taken to heart. Well, we're kind of towards the end of things here. I, Stuart, I wanted to see, did we have any questions from Facebook that you wanted to jump to? So, so I, I actually had one question I wanted to add in a little earlier. And if, it, if you could just expand just a little bit on the differences between a normal physiologic tremor and essential tremor and whether or not it's, it even means anything clinically to differentiate between the two. That's a great question. Um, sometimes it can be hard to differentiate. I'll start by saying that specifically in younger patients. So younger patients, so well, when you think of essential tremor, 
usually the onset is bimodal. Either you get it when you're very early, when you're in your teens or early 20s, or you get it when you're older, when you're 65 plus. Oftentimes, people don't really get it in their 30s or 40s. Of course, they can, but it's not as common. So when you're dealing with that population who has tremor in their 20s, Sometimes it's difficult to differentiate between essential tremor and an enhanced physiologic tremor because phenotypically they look very similar. You have this very high frequency, low amplitude uh, tremor that can be actually more prevalent or, or more noticeable in posture than in intention. By definition, the intention component should be the prevalent component when diagnosed as essential tremor. But have I seen patients who have a postural component who eventually develop a more prevalent intention component? Absolutely. However, I think the important takeaway from this is that when you see a patient like this, where you're not sure between intention tremor and essential tremor, you absolutely have to make sure that you rule out secondary causes of tremor, the most common one being hyper, uh, hyperthyroidism. So mm -hmm. all of these patients deserve a TSH if they haven't had one recently. And I've had quite a bit of those. So usually young, thin women who come in uh, thyrotoxic, and, and then they, uh, they see me for the tremor component, but then I notice that they have proptosis and they're sweating and they've lost weight. And then you realize you kind of put it all together. And it's very satisfying because then, you know, you cure them from their tremor. Um, but sometimes it's just coffee. Sometimes, you know, we live in a country that <laughs> enjoys coffee, and I'm certainly guilty of that, multiple cups a day, and that sometimes can be enough to make people shaky. And that goes more in the realm of an enhanced physiologic trend, which, by definition, is this enhanced component at, in posture. And then the second cause is, of course, medication, and we went through that already. Uh, mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, the doses of the drugs are not that high, but just high enough to give people a little bit more tremor than everybody should have. Now, everybody does have a tremor. If we all take a look, we all will will see that there's there's a little bit of shakiness in our hands, and that might improve, might worsen over the years. But the bottom line is, if it bothers you, we treat it. If it doesn't bother you, we just follow you over time. Hmm. Is there a website that you would recommend uh, with video links other than just YouTube? Is there like a d d is there any organization or or institution that has like fit videos that we can look at to see how someone walks with Parkinson's, how someone moves with Parkinson's versus an essential tremor, just to get the visual aspect of this? Sure. So the International Essential Tremor Foundation (IEDF) is. A fantastic website. Um, I can't remember if they have videos. I think they do, but I'm not 100% sure. You can really find patient-directed and physician-directed information there, as well as resources in terms of support groups and assistive devices, occupational therapists, physicians that treat the condition. So if you're a patient or if you have a patient who wants to know more about essential tremor, I would definitely direct them to the IETF website. By the same token, the National Parkinson's Foundation and the Michael J. Fox Foundation probably are the best um, websites to look for for information about Parkinson's. I'm pretty sure there's videos of that as well there. I was reading a paper the other day that was saying that about 70% of the videos posted on YouTube of patients who have movement disorders actually have a psychiatric condition and not a movement disorder. So I will just say beware of YouTube because not everything that you see on YouTube is actually what they advertise that you see. 
that's that's good advice there that's yeah <laughs> just beware <laughs> okay so beware of the internet got it paul, paul and stewart am i missing anything that we should have asked that we didn't ask before we go to take home points i did want to ask just because i think it's cool not because it's so I guess what I wanted to ask is how often do you use handwriting as a way to sort of differentiate between essential and, and Parkinsonism? Because I've seen that brought up a couple of times, and I think it's neat. But is it actually a routine part of how you actually do an evaluation? It is. It is definitely part of my movement disorder examination, particularly in a patient that comes to me with a complaint of tremor. There's a few things there that, again, it takes 15 minutes, but it, 15 seconds, but it gives you the diagnosis away. In patients with Parkinson's, patients develop micrographia, where the more people write, particularly if they're writing in script, the more will the size of their handwriting tend to shrink. In people with essential tremor, they develop macrographia. So they actually develop these very big, bold letters, which is an attempt to try to minimize the tremor, because it's the tremor gets worse the smaller you try to write. So purposely, the patient will try to write big. So if you tell them to write, and my usual phrase is, today is a sunny day in Philadelphia, if you tell them to <laughs> write that in, uh, in script, you'll see the micrographia, you'll see the micrographia. The other thing I ask them to do is a freehand spiral. So you tell them to grab the pen um, distally, so at the other end of the tip, uh, try to put it on the paper without pressing the hand on the paper. So from space, you see the hand advancing towards the paper. And as you advance the hand, there, right there, you can actually start seeing the tremor. And a lot of people start having this very coarse tremor as they reach the paper, which is very common in essential tremor, but not in Parkinson's. And then when they start to draw a spiral, the spiral in essential tremor will be a large spiral that almost would look like a star or like a sea urchin, if you may. So they have all these little spikes, which is a tremor coming out as they draw this spiral. Whereas in Parkinson's, you'll see this tiny, tiny little spiral that has like this little fluctuations, but really not the coarse, jagged, zigzag lines that you'll see in essential tremor. So if you tell a patient to do that, you don't. sometimes you don't even have to examine them anymore. Sometimes that <laughs> gives it away. I'm glad I asked. Great question, Paul. The, the last thing I... Oh, Stuart? Yeah, I just want to know, despite its rather inaccurate depiction of the disease process, what are your thoughts on the, movies, on the movie Tremors? <laughs> the movie Tremors? I don't think I've seen it. Oh, no. You're going to have to watch it and tell us what you think about the depiction of Tremors. <laughs> I have a comment on Love and Other Drugs, though. The one with Anne Hathaway. Okay, yeah, please. What okay, is go it? Ahead. <laughs> I think in the movie, she had young onset Parkinson's disease, but she did not look at all like a patient with young onset Parkinson's disease. So FYI, if you want to look, we want to see what young onset Parkinson's disease looks like. Don't go by love and other drugs. Other than that, it's a fun movie. <laughs> also, don't watch Tremors. That won't help you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it won't. Uh, it's a misnomer. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yet another strike against Anne Hathaway. Well, I would... <laughs> I, would I have nothing against her. I really like her, but, uh, you know. Well, Andres, so if you could give us your take-home points, and I think the big, the big point of the episode or the theme is how to, you know, remind us essential tremor versus Parkinson's disease and what would be the main take-home points there to help the audience. Sure. So, uh, 
the idea would be that if you see a patient with a rest tremor where the tremor doesn't necessarily interfere with many activities, it just seems to be more annoying, and the tremor goes away as the patient picks up their arms, then that probably is a rest tremor from Parkinson's. Very different from a patient who tells you that they have a tremor that comes out when they are doing certain activities and that it interferes with many different ones of them. So those patients probably have essential tremor. And then sometimes you can't just tell from the tremor itself. So always keep in mind that the tremor, although sometimes it's enough to give the diagnosis away, sometimes it's also the company of it that it keeps. So if you see a patient with a mild tremor, a little bit at rest, a little bit with action, but the patient is clearly Parkinsonian, doesn't blink, doesn't swing their arms when they walk, has their mouth open all the time and moves very slow. Regardless of what you see in the tremor side, the most likely diagnosis there is going to be Parkinson's. But the absence of all of these added features in a patient with just an action tremor probably will be essential tremor. Great. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Super helpful. I, I love, uh, I, we, we need to have more neurologists on guys because I love the, I think the description of the physical exam actually works well. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I think I'm excited to go try out these things, like having patients draw the spiral and it, I think it's going to be really helpful to the audience as well. Glad to hear that. No, I, I think, you know, it, it's all really history and exam and I, I think it's an afterthought to do these things because we live in a world that. We need to do everything fast and now, but but I will say the extra minute pays off. You're here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, thank you so much for doing this. This was awesome. Thank you, guys. This was yeah. very fun. Yeah. This was great. Thank you. All right. Take care, guys. Have a good night. Bye. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing mm-hmm. you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You, Delicious. You can find show notes along with Lake City articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. Can you, we can we put links to movies too? Sure. You, Excellent. And links to movies. You, <laughs> you can also <laughs> you can also sign up to receive our weekly mailing list where you will receive a copy, a PDF copy, of our wonderfully done show notes filled with facts and figures. That's at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. We're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. So send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at the Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham, and I want to remind our audience to please leave a review on iTunes as well that we've conspicuously not mentioned for the past few episodes. (laughs) And good night. And I remain Paul Williams, and good night. And a special special thanks and shout out to Chris Chris Thrash and Beth Garbatelli, whose name I probably mispronounced, but they are our correspondents who helped write this episode and produce the show notes thank you very much good night strong work guys Did you guys want to do any picks of the week? I've got one.
Okay. Yeah. Is it another movie? It's not. It's actually, it's, not. it's a book. Okay. That's a breath of fresh air. <laughs> Unless it's going to be Tremors, which is actually a great movie. Maybe I'll recommend that. <laughs> I love that you uh, <laughs> brought that up, Stuart. I had to.